I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, a new podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. Do you use a Sharpie to score through the price tags on items that your interior designer brings into your home so that your domestic staff don't know how much you're spending. When you undertake home renovation, do you ponder whether to install an elevator? Is $6 too much to spend on a loaf of bread? And what about $2 million on your second home? These are the sorts of issue faced by New York's most affluent, recounted in Rachel Sherman's eye-opening new book, Uneasy Street. Rachel is an associate professor of sociology at the New School in New York, and she's spent time with some of that city's wealthiest, investigating their attitudes to money. Her aim, though, is not to pass judgment on individuals. I think it's a little bit counterintuitive, the point that I'm making, because in a way I seem to be portraying wealthy people in a more sympathetic light. And that is true in the sense that I'm interested in how judging wealthy individuals is actually sort of problematic. But In terms of the system that we are reproducing with those judgments, I'm very critical of that. Some of Rachel's interviewees inherited their wealth. Others earned it in fields such as corporate law or finance. She wondered, at a time of growing inequality in the most unequal city in the United States, what do those with most money feel about their wealth? How do they spend it? What do they prioritise? What do they feel it says about them? Max Weber wrote, The fortunate man is seldom satisfied with the fact of being fortunate. Beyond this, he needs to know that he has a right to his good fortune. He wants to be convinced that he deserves it. Over a century later, anxiety about deserving it persists. As Sherman shows, anxieties of affluence aren't restricted to fears of losing a job with a high six-figure salary. They also include worries about moral worth. How do I show others, how do I convince myself, that I'm a good person? I began by asking Rachel how she framed the project and recruited participants for it. You know, the project really was, at least initially, was about consumption, you know, how, not exactly consumption habits, how the people that I was interviewing, how people who have um, some you know, affluence or some some degree of choice about how they spend their money, right, who have something that we can think of as options, how they decide to make big lifestyle decisions, right? So I was interested in where they buy a home, how they renovate a home, uh, where they send their kids to school, where they, you know, what they do in their leisure time, their travel, and so on. I wasn't so interested in 
you know, super specific, like what kind of car do you have and where do you buy your shoes kind of stuff. But just how you think about, because it, and it came out of the project that you mentioned earlier, the luxury hotel project in that the question of what's a need and what's a luxury, you know, how do people who have a lot of options about spending money define their needs and how do they think about that? So that was kind of the motivating question. And initially I had trouble finding people to talk to because it's so broad, you know, it's like, here's, everybody makes lifestyle decisions. So I think that there was a little bit of a sense of like, why would I want to talk to these particular people? And I ended up focusing on home renovation as the thing that I would start with because so many people that I, in the first interviews that I did, had done home renovations and it seemed like a proxy for affluence and it brings up lots of issues of, you know, aesthetics, consumption. It turns out to bring up a lot of issues of relationships and money. And, you know, the project kind of shifted as I was doing the interviews and even as I was writing the book to become more about this question of discomfort with identifying as affluent and discomfort with wealth. Did you did you realize when you set out in the project that discomfort was going to be such a an important theme that it would actually give you the title of the book? No, I didn't realize that. And I remember, you know, one of the first presentations I gave uh, on this project in like 2012, when I had just been interviewing for, you know, hadn't done that many interviews. And I presented a paper that I thought was going to be one chapter of the book that was about these issues. And it later just turned into the whole book, basically. So yeah, I didn't expect that. And, and also to answer your earlier question, I mean, mostly I found these people through, you know, snowball sampling or convenience sampling, just through people that I knew and then through those people who I already interviewed. But I also found some of them through, a few of them through organizations oriented toward liberal and progressive wealthy people. Given the discomfort about not quite being sure how to present their their affluence is one of the main, you know, the main theme of the book. Was it difficult to get these people to to agree to take part and then to to be frank with you when you when you sat down with them, people you hadn't met before, and you began going through your questionnaire? Yeah, I mean, again, because the the project ultimately became focused on home renovation, you know, it wasn't that hard to get people to talk to me about that and. You know, I was uh, like open with them about the kinds of issues that I was interested in, but I didn't even think, you know, like, oh, this interview is going to be about your discomfort with having money. So those were themes that emerged. But yeah, I was asking questions, you know, it is conventional to ask questions about income and assets in studies like this. And so then I was given the opportunity to, to see the discomfort with which they talked about that. And it also comes up often in the ways that people talk about decisions that they made in their homes, right? So it sort of emerged sometimes from the, from exactly the topic that we were talking about. Early on in the book, you make this distinction between upward and downward orientation in the way that people react to their wealth, talk about their wealth. Can you say a little bit about what that is and why it's such an important distinction that you keep coming back to? You know, again, this is not, it's not set in stone. It's sort of an ideal type or, you know, two poles on a continuum. But I think that the upward-oriented people are seem to me to be primarily oriented not only the, to people who have more than they do or people who have about the same as what they have, right? They have relatively homogenous communities. Um, these tended to be more people who worked in finance or whose husbands worked in finance because I interviewed a lot of stay-at-home moms with husbands working in that sector. And so they're people who are more likely to think of themselves as being in the middle, 
or represent themselves in different ways as, you know, they're just much more focused on, on people above them. And not in a, I think we have a tendency to imagine that that would be happening in a kind of covetous way, you know, that they would think they didn't have enough. There's a little bit of that, but I think more it's actually a way of mitigating discomfort to think like, well, I'm not really that rich because, you know, I know these other people who are, have a private plane or who are richer than I am. And then the downward-oriented people are have more heterogeneous social networks. They tend to be a little bit more progressive politically. They often are these inheritors who work in occupations where they, you know, come into contact with people who have less than they do. So, and not exclusively inheritors, because upwardly mobile people also are often downward-oriented, even though they've earned their money. They have family and friends from, you know, their communities of origin that have a different class background. So... That's the sort of main difference. And and just in terms of what you asked me before, also I think that the way that upward-oriented people are a, a little bit more reluctant to talk explicitly about any discomforts that they may have about money, and, and not all of them do. I mean, I, I think that, you know, there is variation on this too. But as I said, they're more likely to just kind of be not thinking of themselves as wealthy, whereas the downward-oriented people who I spoke to were more... Uh, willing to identify as wealthy to me, but were still uncomfortable with sort of with the world seeing them that way. You mentioned a moment ago that if you stop people in the street and ask them about how the wealthy behave, that this idea of competition will probably come up as one of the the first preconceptions we have. And as you say, your research makes clear that's that's really not that's not the main way they think. But they are very definitely always thinking comparatively, aren't they? Even if that comparison is is in order to make themselves feel better about not being you know not being super rich. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, I, and I, that's the whole thing about what is rich, right? What does it mean to be rich? Uh, it's, it's inherently a relative category. So how you define it depends on who you're comparing yourself or other people to. And yeah, absolutely. I think these interviewees, you know, as many of us are kind of constantly engaged in, in a comparative project. It was fascinating what you had to say about what we might regard as as middle class virtues, you know, hard work, modesty, tending towards frugality and expenditure, modest consumption, not feeling as though we we're entitled. And it was interesting to see how those values were being replicated by your interviewees, but again, in a context which most people would would regard as as far from from frugal or um, or modest. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that across the board, you know, whether they were upward oriented or downward oriented, they all want to be morally worthy of their wealth. And as you just said, I mean, that means being both hardworking and kind of disciplined consumers. Um, It also means giving back in a variety of ways. And it means raising children who aren't entitled, which is, you know, this terrible word um, for obnoxious and, you know, not having any work ethic and so on, materialistic and so on. So, yeah, they were always engaged in representing themselves that way. To me, that's what's important about this research is to think about why it mattered to them to be that as opposed to whether or not they actually are that as, you know, according to some other metric, which, again, it's all relative, right? Yeah, so, and I think that that aspiration to the middle, as I call it, is, you know, that that having those values in the U.S. and probably elsewhere is it's very strongly associated with a kind of American middleness. So that even for the people who are not saying, like, we are literally in the middle, it's kind of morally worthy to be in that broad American middle rather than being 
rich, which is not exclusively, but very often associated with these kind of moral transgressions of, you know, of laziness and ostentation and rudeness and so on. Yeah, I mean, the paradox that you that you come round to in the end of the book is that pursuing wealth is set up as as a as an entitlement and a key part of the American dream. It's it's an unalloyed good to pursue wealth, but then when you achieve it, then it becomes morally much more problematic. And you're sort of you're sort of demonstrating how how different people negotiate that that feeling of awkwardness when they actually achieve what what many people you know not just in the United States would say that they are striving for, and is not yeah. you know it's not is not it's not widely regarded as morally pro- problematic. Yeah, you mean it's not widely regarded as morally problematic to strive for it? To strive to, you know, to make something of yourself, to make as much as, uh, of yourself as you can, is generally regarded as a sort of socially valid thing to do. Right, I mean, and that's, you know, we always, I think our politicians and public figures often frame themselves as strivers, right, as having striven, if that's the correct way to say that. Yeah, because it is the striving somehow that is the morally worthy thing, and then it's, as you said, it's more complicated, the having of the wealth. And I think that there is a real, it's not just that issue in the kind of American dream ideology. It's also that when you think of the American dream as having to do with immigrants, you know, who come to the U.S. just aspiring to a better life, and the better life is something more analogous to like a middle-class life, right? What we think of now as a middle-class life, having a reasonable education, maybe owning a home, I'm not sure that the images of the American dream are of like, you know, super wealthy people and opulence and so on, right? And there's a lot of ambivalence, I think, in American culture about that. You think of, you know, I'm always shocked about The Great Gatsby, which is, I think, probably one of the most taught novels in the American canon. You know, every American high school student probably reads The Great Gatsby, which has a very, very ambivalent portrayal of the American dream kind of at its heart, right? And there are a lot of images like that where it seems like we feel ambivalence about what it means to achieve the American dream, even if the striving for it, you know, is always desirable. And especially, of course, at this moment, you know, contemporary moment of great inequality, where it's more clear than ever that, you know, the playing field is not level for everybody, where some of the, you know, remuneration in finance and related industries is so excessive that I think it's quite hard to justify for the people who are making that money. And as you know, as my book shows, some of those people even talk openly about the difficulty of that. One one thought that will definitely remain with me from your book is that the way lifestyles are portrayed in, in American movies, if you just think about the way people are portrayed in films and what kind of income they would need to support their lifestyles, even though they're not being portrayed as super wealthy, it's probably well beyond the aspirations of most middle-class families. And the other, the other point that, that, you, that you make is that really the middle class is sort of being hollowed out. I think you call it a ghost class. And yet a certain kind of lifestyle, which is not, as I say, super opulent, but is still requires a lot of money to sustain it, is what you is what you see as kind of normal apartments and normal lifestyles, you know, normal numbers of cars or, or acreage um, in, in the cinema. Right, exactly. I mean, I think that there's a, a the representation of what it means to be middle class is actually more what it means to be upper middle class, and in some cases, what it means to be wealthy. Um, and certainly, I'm not the first person to identify that. But I remember Juliet Shore talks about that in her book um, about consumption, that's from like 1998, about how you see people on TV who have these apartments, you know, that people who are actually in their jobs or whatever would never be able to afford. And then people, you're watching the TV and you kind of think like, oh, you know, that's, that's, 
becomes normal. And as that representation of the middle class, you know, takes hold, then what disappears is the actual middle class. I mean, people who are really distributionally in the middle. And of course, people who are poor, who are very, you know, seldom represented, I would say, in, in American popular culture. I just wanted to, to, to pick out a, a few examples about the renovation projects, because you mentioned earlier, Rachel, that's a sort of key focus in the book. And one of the ones that sticks in my mind is Gary, who was engaged in an expensive kitchen renovation, but drew the line at spending extra money on a fancy stove. Now, what do you think was, was going on with, with his story? Yeah, I mean, he's the one who says, you know, that he and his wife and his children lead a very expensive, ordinary life. Um, and he's, you know, quite open about the fact that their life is expensive, but it is not a life that he would associate with rich people. You know, they don't have a car, and he says they don't go skiing in Vail all the time, and, you know, they don't travel a lot, like these kind of tropes of, of richness. What he says in the thing about the, you know, that they've renovated their kitchen, and it's a very, he says, like, it's a very nice kitchen, but we don't want it to be too fancy, partly because our friends and neighbors are going to see it, and partly because... You know, he kind of channels his grandmother who says, you know, it's a stove, it heats up the pots, right? Like, how how many bells and whistles does it need? It doesn't need to be one of these restaurant-quality stoves that, like, everybody... I mean, in my experience, like, all of the people that I interviewed, it's almost standard now to have a, a stove that looks like a restaurant stove. It doesn't even have to be that expensive, right? But it's just a completely different-looking stove from the old-timey stove. Yeah, so he's sort of like, we don't need that, and our contractor was just going to buy it. You know, the contractor was so sure that that was what they would want, that he was just going to buy it without even talking to them. The word that sprang to my mind was tokenism. It seemed to me that there's there's quite a lot of bad faith and there's quite a lot of tokenism going on. And I, I know that's rather judgmental on my part, but that's that's how it came across to me that you can spend a lot of money buying the real estate and doing major renovations. But as long as you've got something which allows you to say, you know, tokenistically or totemistically, you've got some contact with your, with your grandmother's values. You're not going to be taken for a ride by spending, you know, too much money in the stove. You've somehow salvaged some, some kind of um, moral worth and sense of proportion. Yeah, I have such mixed feelings about that. I mean, just because the idea, just the word tokenism, as you said, I mean, it is quite judgmental, right? So, I mean, in a way, like, yes and no, in a sense, you know, this is a guy who also has a second home, which he has furnished, you know, as he admits freely at great expense. And he talks about how hard it is. You know, he said, he said something like, I can't tell my friends that I furnished this house on a shoestring because it wasn't a shoestring. So he's quite cognizant of it. And then the question is, what does it mean for it to be tokenism? You know, tokenism to whom? Is it tokenism to me? Because he wants me to not think that he's a bad person. You know, as long as he doesn't have a fancy stove, he he will be kind of morally okay. I'm a little bit more interested in whether it's maybe tokenism for himself, you know. And I think some of these, like, liberal inheritors, you know, um, of which he is one, they don't know how to get themselves off the hook morally. So they sort of tell themselves a story about if they're aware of it, if they're thinking about it, you know, if they're drawing limits, like not having the fancy stove, or if they're kind of torturing themselves about not putting their kids in private school, or, you know, even though, even if they end up doing that in the final analysis, then they are better people or they can feel better about this. I think that is definitely happening. But whether that is tokenism or kind of a rationalization or a justification in a shallow sense, you know, that we can just, I don't think it's a throwaway thing for them. I don't think it's just a thing that they say and then they're immediately off the hook. I think they are really conflicted about it. 
And I think that it raises the question of two questions for me, one of which is what's our investment in judging them, right? We're always like looking for ways that no, actually they're like really bad self-interested people. And the other question is what's the alternative, right? What do we imagine that these people can do as individuals that will change the system of which, you know, of which they're critical, especially people like him who have a more progressive politics and therefore a more kind of systemic analysis of what the problems are. Well, I thought one one of the um, the other renovators um, who had a very interesting response to why they were spending such a lot of money was Richard, who's very honest, it seemed to me, in saying, well, we're doing all this, we're doing it for the kid, but we kind of sort of see that we are and we aren't. In a way, it's a sort of rationalisation, and in a way, it's true. And that seemed to capture something of the of the complexity and the the ambivalence. And it, and I sort of believed him that in a way he was doing it for the kid, but in, in a way that, that that had then become a story which made him perhaps feel easier about the expenditure. Right, exactly. I mean, he says, we're doing it for the kid. And then he says, he sort of says, that's a story that we tell ourselves, you know, that we're doing it for the kid, because it would feel weird. Not just it would feel weird to that it would feel odd to be spending a lot of money on this, partly because, you know, it's just a huge amount of money. I mean, that is one part of it. And partly because it's weird to have the money too. So yeah, I mean, I interviewed this other woman who talked about putting an elevator into the into the house that she lives in. And she said, it's actually not that expensive to put in an elevator when you're doing a gut renovation. And then, you know, I sort of followed up, like, do you feel weird about the elevator? And she said, yeah, that's why I have that line about it's not that expensive. So again, you see that moment of like reflexivity where they're quite aware of the stories that they're telling themselves and others, you know, that sort of make it not seem like so much, you know, it seems like, God, you must be so rich to have an elevator. It's, it's kind of excessive to have an elevator. It's like, well, no, I'm just going to minimize this a little bit. Just like the, you know, having a child or having a, a home that works for your child is, you know, better than just kind of self-indulgently doing it without the child. Again, I, I know the answer will be that it was on a continuum rather than, yeah. rather than black <laughs> or white, but how in touch with how, if I can put it like this, regular people's lives did you did you find your interviewees were? I mean, I, one of the other things that, that sticks in my mind is a man who would take a sharpie and um, and black out the price of of um, you know homeware, home renovation materials that were coming in because he was worried about the the domestic stuff that worked for them seeing it and realizing just how much money. So there is there's obviously a, a sort of consciousness there about other people's lives and how they will be perceived. But I mean, how how widespread and how how discomforting did you did you think that um, that awareness was? Yeah, I mean, I think that story about the the price tags, but that's actually an interior designer who told me that his clients do that. And then I interviewed one woman who her, herself, you know, independently brought up that she will take the tags off her clothes and off of her bread and so on. People who are working in your home become the representative then of sort of poor people, right? And so they become a flashpoint. And this is something that, you know, a lot of research on nannies and house cleaners has established that um, in a certain way that they are the representatives of the have-nots and they're actually standing in the room with you. And in the case of women, they're often spending a lot of time, you know, especially stay-at-home mothers, they they spend a lot of time together. So 
they are in a way that that relationship becomes one that has to be managed in this kind of crossing out the price tags kind of way. Although I would say that even crossing out the price tags is more a way of hiding one's discomfort from oneself rather than hiding one's affluence from one's nanny since one's, you know, household staff already knows that their employers are wealthy. Beyond that, I mean, I think that that it did vary between people who were tended to be more upward oriented, who, as I said, have more homogenous social networks, tend to hang out more with people who are like them, and people who are downward oriented, who have more heterogeneous social networks, and I think do actually have more contact with people who are different from them. And, you know, a lot of this revolves around whether or not they have kids in public school. And some of the people I interviewed with smaller children did have them in public school, although I'm fairly confident that almost all of these kids are going to end up in private school uh, by the time they're, you know, in middle and high school. Yeah, so I think that, the you know, those school networks, occupational networks, and some of the more progressive inheritor types work in nonprofits that work with you know, people who are actually quite poor. And so in that sense, they have contact with those people too. Now, what do you make of the quite frequently expressed fear among your interviews or some of your interviews that it could all come crashing down, that a, that a, that a job could be lost, that income could suddenly plummet and they would find themselves in, in real dire straits? Do you think they sincerely believed that? Did you think that they had legitimate fears or do you think it was an, an element of again, sort of making themselves feel more comfortable with their current wealth, thinking, well, it might not, it might not last. Or even, a, I wondered if there was even a bit of sort of, sort of magical thinking in there, that if you invoke the, if you invoke the fear, perhaps you, you ward it off. Yeah, I think it can be all of those. I mean, I don't think that they, they necessarily are mutually exclusive. So on the one hand, again, it's easy to look at these people and just think, well, if you're so worried about your money, you know, maybe you shouldn't have a like $2 million house in the Hamptons and a, you know, I don't know, $8 million apartment in New York City. And of course, in terms of economic prudence, that's probably true. But I, that doesn't mean that the fear isn't genuine. Whether or not it's, you know, morally valid is not really for me to adjudicate. But I think that it's, I think it's true. And I think it's true partly because the people who have primarily earned wealth, I mean, that, that their wealth comes from their income, you know, often depend on jobs, a single job in a pretty volatile sector. And so it it stands to reason that they might be worried about losing those jobs. And also in the U.S., you know, we live in a society where our health care is not provided by the state. Um, We have no retirement provided by the state, very minimal retirement provided by the state um, in the form of Social Security. Right. We are dependent on markets. We're more or less responsible for our own education, especially in places like New York City, where there's a lot of problems with public education. So we don't have that state support. Right. We don't have a floor, really, that, you know, if somebody gets sick, it can cost us out of pocket. You know, I mean, really hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars. So in that sense, the specificity, the particularity of the American system, I think, is is definitely playing a role, too. Yeah, but of course, the, as a reader, I found myself thinking, well, you know, it's true that it could come crashing down, but you're probably going to be in a better situation for coping with it than you than, than if you were someone on, you know, minimum wage or even an average wage or even, even an above average wage in, in New York City. Yes, absolutely, of course. And that's where, you know, who you associate with influences a lot how you think about stuff and how you locate yourself in relation to other people. But I would say that that's true, I mean, for me and perhaps for you and for your listeners too, right? We're not 
always thinking about our decision making in relation to the poorest possible people in our society. I think you say you're not going to be judgmental and I think you you succeed brilliantly. You are very non-judgmental. But I wondered as a human being, did you did you find it difficult sometimes to suspend judgment, not to inwardly raise an eyebrow or think, my God, that's really quite a, you know, if someone's telling you they're cutting back their monthly expenditure from $19,000 to $16,000, you know, you think, well, how, how, how much um, moral credit does attaches to that? Yeah, I mean, of course, and in some instances, I did struggle not to be judgmental of particular things that particular people would say to me. But as an interviewer, I think it's really important to, you know, have empathy for your subjects, whoever they are. And the thing I'm more critical of is just that we have these unequal distributions of income and wealth to begin with. Right. And so really, the point, I I think it's a little bit counterintuitive, the point that I'm making, because in a way, I seem to be portraying wealthy people in a more sympathetic light than they often are portrayed in. And that is true in the sense that I'm interested in how wealthy individuals, how judging wealthy individuals is actually sort of problematic. But in terms of the system that we are reproducing with those judgments, I'm very critical of that. And so basically what I'm trying to suggest is that if we thought less about you know, whether Donald Trump deserves his wealth more or less than, you know, Warren Buffett or Kim Kardashian or, you know, J.K. Rowling or whoever, maybe we could think a little bit more about what kind of moral, what are the, what's the morality of the kinds of distributions that we have. And of course, a wealthy person who says, if I gave away all of my wealth tomorrow, inequality in in U.S. society really wouldn't, wouldn't shift by a a hundredth of a percentage point. I mean, that that's entirely true, isn't it? They're not deceiving themselves in that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that that's part of the problem of where we have, you know, social problems, which are collective problems. What is the role of individuals in solving those problems? So, of course, individuals who care about income inequality, who are wealthy or not, um, can vote for candidates in our democracy who also care about those issues. And wealthy people can give away their money to those kinds of causes. It's not that they there's nothing they can do. But I think giving away their money doesn't make sense to them. And it doesn't make sense to me. Um, And, you know, very few of them are as critical of the sort of social structures of inequality as I am, right? A, A couple of them are, but most of them aren't. So they're not, most of them are not thinking about doing that anyway. But that's the conversation that I'm more interested in having is like, what is the relationship between the individual accumulation and systemic problems of distribution? And what's the role that that how can individuals play a role in changing that? And how can people who aren't rich, think about those distributions, um, and about wealthy people in a way that is a little bit more productive, and not just so invested in these negative judgments. I was talking to Rachel Sherman about her recent book, Uneasy Street, The Anxieties of Affluence, which is published by Princeton University Press. You can find out more about it on Princeton's website. Do also visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. And if you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you can catch up on any interviews you've missed. There are all sorts of good things coming up in the weeks ahead, including Ronald Hutton on his new book on witches, and Rosalind Lapierre, on the culture and history of the Blackfeet tribe. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.